0: Hi, welcome to the Nishamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness. The pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi,
1: welcome back to the Neshama's podcast. Today, we are very honored to have Brie Levolove. She grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, and currently lives in Boca Raton. She's a wife, mother of a daughter. She's a floral designer, which she's actually taken a break from to be more with her newborn daughter. Newborn? I'm saying newborn, but how old is she now? Seven months. Seven months. Brie shares her experience with others generously on her Instagram page, and we are honored to have her here with us today. Brie is in recovery from disordered eating and addiction to alcohol. She spent years fighting an internal monster in the dark, and thank God, was able to gain awareness of what was happening for her and begin her recovery process nine years ago. So, Welcome, Brie, and thank you for being here.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Welcome. Before we begin, what's so present for me is uh, that your husband is at home watching your baby and he's supporting you to do this. So just want to thank him publicly. And yeah, if you can just introduce yourself to anybody who's listening to it or anybody who hasn't seen your Instagram page, I guess let's start from the beginning if possible. What was the environment or what was it like for you as a kid?
3: Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really happy to be sharing some of my story. I hope that I could reach some people's hearts and minds and send a good message out. So, my environment growing up was beautiful. I'm one of nine children, I'm the third to oldest. I was very well taken care of, loving parents. I grew up on shluchus. I was homeschooled. I didn't really have any classmates. I I was taken care of. I had a nice home. I had clean clothes. I had good
2: food to eat. And I was loved. Baruch Hashem. Thank God. What do you think
1: was, if you, as far as you can remember, like where any of the disordered eating or... Like, where do you believe that that began, that journey?
3: The first memory that I could remember is around the age of nine years old. I remember just looking in the mirror and never being happy with what I saw, always seeing flaws. And so it started with just the hair and the skin and just not being accepting of the body that God gave me and always wanting something else better that someone else had. And then it started moving on to my actual body size. So it started out as not liking the makeup of me. And then that led into years later of actually taking control of
2: the food that I put inside my body. I'm kind
1: of curious about what... I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what what contributed to you even comparing? Like, meaning if you're looking in the mirror and you're looking at yourself, what is the image that you're comparing it to? Like, where did the idea of what it's supposed to be come from?
3: That's a great question. I think I, I was not really exposed to not good, let's just say, magazines or movies or social media style things. So... What was I comparing it to? I think I just. And by just, the way,
1: that's assuming that you were comparing it to. I'm just yeah. like thinking like very surface level. Like, right. Yeah. Maybe it was magazines. Maybe it was posters as you walked in the street Kirby. and oh, I'm supposed to look like that. Or a person where you really admired and like, oh man, I want what she has. So I guess I have to look like she looks. I was just wondering, I, I don't know it works, but maybe it just could have been a, an internal feeling that, oh, you know what? I'll feel better if I look different.
3: Right. So I think that I was feeling not enough in general, in my just as a person. And the way I translated it was, I'll be better if I look. So I don't think I had the greatest amount of self esteem and confidence. And I didn't feel like I was capable or good at anything. So I thought maybe if my image changes, I'll be more worthy and better. And.
1: Right. Yeah. And. If you can pinpoint to this, I know these are maybe different questions, but if I was worthy and I was confident I was enough, what, do you, what were you fighting for to get? If only I was worthy, then I'd be able to X.
2: Wow. it's a good question. Probably maybe loved or seen, or I think
3: loved is a big one, mm-hmm. kind of just to be lo- seen and feel like needed maybe.
1: And that's when you're like nine,
3: big time. yeah,
1: well, I know. Can you teach us a little bit like of the process to you? Know, what were those, what was the progression of so it starts off by looking in the mirror and seeing un- external things and then starting to go into your eating size
2: so it was like it turned into wanting to buy certain clothing
3: that. Didn't necessarily match the religious standards of my family and my upbringing and my community. so then I had those restrictions that made it even harder and m- caused me to want to even take more control of my food because I couldn't pick what i anything. i I couldn't wear what I wanted. so then that also led into wanting to maybe wear some makeup and not either being allowed to do that. So then that also helped me go farther down the eating, disordered eating path. And also I think that in the timing that when I was around nine years old and growing up, I'm 29 now, so just say 20 years ago, it sounds so much, but I think dieting was, I I know dieting is still a huge thing today, but Dieting 20 years ago was like a fad, like with all those, the pineapple diet and, and the watermelon diets. This is just things that I was modeled as a child back then, 20 years ago by the, the adults.
1: What, what, if you can, I'm just like really curious about it. What does it mean, the pineapple diet? <laughs> if you happen to know.
3: I don't really know, but there's not much to know. Listen to this. I think the pineapple diet is you only eat pineapple, literally. I'm oh telling you, God, these were okay. things back then. And I remember finding these diet magazines. I don't remember the names of them, but yeah, literally just crazy diets that were not a good example of healthy, balanced eating. And Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, if you were on a diet, it was like you're doing the right thing almost, but like not a healthy diet. Like just eating pineapple is not healthy. So that contributed to my eating disorder, seeing diets all over and seeing... Caretakers in my life and people I looked up to dieting.
1: Tell me if this sounds accurate. I'm just hearing it. I just want to really um, hone into what is actually happening. And that is like, I have an internal emptiness and I'm going to try to use my body to bring that to me. Yeah. So I'm going to use my body to get something from outside so that I can have it inside.
3: Big time. That is so, it's such a good, like, Such a good point, because it's like the foundation of everything almost. I thought that my personality, like me, I'll be seen, heard, loved, and not be empty if I'm thin, okay? And if I look a certain, quote unquote, good, perfect way. And I felt that growing up in my family, if I'm thin, I I would gain more attention. I was seen better that way. So if I didn't take dessert on a Shabbat dinner, I was praised. And that praise led to me wanting more praise and more praise to be seen, loved, and heard. I didn't start restricting my food when I was nine or 10 or 11. I do remember my bat mitzvah really putting on a, a, a gown and feeling, I don't know if this is a, a, an okay word to say, but fat. And I was healthy. I was a healthy weight, but I do remember seeing myself as fat in the mirror. And then the restrictive eating started when I was around maybe sixteen years old, but before that, I remember secretly doing exercises in my room in front of the mirror, like I would just do sit ups and jumping jacks, but I had to do it quietly because something felt off. I felt like I was hiding it, and I had to hide it from somebody. The part where they eat where I said I would restrict my food was it started out with not having desserts and being praised on yemptive meals and stuff. But the real restriction started when I was more in high school and seminary.
1: What do you think contributed to you wanting to hide the exercise? Why do you want to hide it?
2: Because I think that I
3: felt that if, let's just say, my mom would see me exercising, she might feel that I'm hurting and that I'm not just a happy child. And I wasn't ready to go down that road with her.
1: So, hiding the exercise, that's like really the earliest physical work that you're doing in, in order to change the way you appear?
3: Yeah, 100%.
1: And when did like makeup and things like that begin? Well, was I wasn't allowed
3: before? to wear makeup. Okay. So, what, why I mention that is because it contributed to my uh, spiral down because when you're not happy with your physical body and then you have on top of that let's just say religious restrictions it's like you you almost become more rebellious
4: mhm
1: and how did the rebellion express itself
3: sneaking makeup okay and then maybe let's just say lip gloss which is like
1: right so then nothing. so so i have to hide the exercise and i have to hide the makeup now too
3: right and then and then also starting that was the start of dressing immodestly too
4: Mm
1: -hmm. What happens, like I wonder what happens as a result of now needing to live like two lives. I have to hide part of me and I could show another part of me.
3: It creates even more of a confusion and rebellion and a sense of feeling lost in yourself and in the world. It's not authentic at all.
1: Do you remember feeling that way?
3: Big time. I always, in in all my journals, I remember writing, I feel like I'm living two lives. But I also was very aware that I almost felt as rebellious as I was and off, let's just say, the path I went. I always knew that there was the Yetzir let's just say, and Yetzir Tov. And I always, I was always, I always had a very firm side to me. I think it was, and it's a beautiful thing. I always felt that there was a real struggle, good person in me and a bad person. and. Sometimes I felt that it was not fair because the bad person sometimes won over me and I was the bad person. Sometimes the good person won won over and I was the good person and I never liked it. I always wanted, I almost wanted them to live in harmony almost like where it's like, yeah, the bad person's there, but it's quiet and I'm going to choose to follow the good way. I was never able to choose. It was almost like the bad person was the monster and it just punched me in the face and said, I'm taking control of your life.
1: Right. Would you say it was this idea, like you spent a lot of time fighting a monster in the dark and that's what it was? Like, not only was there a monster, you weren't able to identify it. It was just like controlling you.
3: Oh my gosh. Like, so, so, so yes. Like so much yes. I had no idea what was going on inside of me. It was an emptiness that was getting filled with not good things, right? So if it was the restrictive eating, if it was the running away from religion and doing Dangerous things, which later on turned into alcohol, alcoholism, and just scary stuff, (laughs) driving under the influence. I mean, just not safe things. But in the beginning with the eating disorder, I was constantly sad, depressed, angry, miserable, but I didn't know where it was coming from. And so it was like I'm fighting something, but what am I fighting?
1: And I have to hide it.
3: Right. And I have to hide it because. Nobody could find out about this. And also, yeah, I have to be dressed modest and religious, but then I'm not. So it's like fighting a monster, but behind a costume.
1: Like, it seems like a trap. That's what it sounds like. It's a trap. Like on one hand, you have to get the job done. On the other hand, you can't even go ahead and and get get into it. Yeah. Can you just describe to me what is disordered eating?
3: For me, or in for general, you. yeah, for you. For me, it manifested in many different ways. It really depends on and what year of my, where I was in my journey and story. But in the beginning, it started out with I told you with refraining from desserts in public settings so mm-hmm. that I could be praised. Later on, it turned into I remember going to like all sugar-free things, like t- like I wanted cookies, but it was all sugar-free and. Anything sweet was sugar-free, and I thought that if I eat sugar-free, I'll be skinny. I guess.
1: So if I so so the more sugar-free I eat, the skinnier I'll get. I mean, so let me eat a lot of sugar-free.
3: Kind of. It's like it's like
1: sugar-free over it
3: because it says sugar-free. I'm being healthy, but I never allowed myself to have sugar, so I was just I would I just kept craving it more. And I was just, I started getting unhealthy. I started getting really bad stomach aches because I'm eating sugar-free things. It's so unhealthy. Literally, my Mm -hmm. coffee had six packs of Splenda because that was my source of sweetness. Oh! And by the way, like- I'm
1: saying, okay, whatever. I'm just imagining how sweet that is.
3: Like, really, it wasn't healthy because like I never allowed myself to have a dessert at that point. And when I craved something sweet, my coffee was that dessert. Mm -hmm. It had to be really sweet.
1: And what age is that when you say just specifically the coffee?
3: Like the coffee part, 20 years old. Okay. I literally, literally remember in my therapy sessions, one of my problems was why do I have six packs of Splenda in my coffee and why can't I have, why do I need, I felt that I was like, it was so unhealthy. It's like, why am I, what am I doing? Like, why do I need six packs of Splenda? I remember needing to explore that. And only years later, after coming out of rehab, did I realize you never let yourself eat anything sweet. So your coffee was almost like your your sweet snack.
1: Right, your safe haven.
3: Yeah, exactly. Get to
1: indulge. Um, Yeah, so if you can, just go through the years. Okay.
3: So then it was sugar free, and then it went to no dairy. After the sugar free, I was starting. I started getting sick, so I had to stop with the sugar free
1: stuff. The stomach pains? Like or stomach
3: pains, um, skin problems. I still always had my Splenda in my coffee though, but I cut out like the sugar-free snacks, like the cookies and cakes. And then I did, and then I was, what I could remember is being in seminary in Italy. And actually it was like a switch turned off. I stopped eating completely. I came a month late to seminary. I was already feeling very um, insecure and not knowing anyone. And they already bonded over like a whole Shabbaton touring Italy. And I felt very, yeah, very scared and left out. So I just stopped eating completely. Like when I say stopped eating, I had one apple a day and a can of tuna with nothing added to it. And I do remember eating those two things. And I felt like when you're so thirsty after a long run and you take your first gulp of water, like that feeling of if you don't drink it right away, you're going to faint. That's what that food did for me. That was when the switch turned where it went from still eating and being healthy to not being healthy at all. Like almost like being in the hospital.
1: And And how long did that last?
3: So that lasted a whole year.
1: Uh, one second. Let me just be clear. You went through an entire year of just eating an apple and a can of tuna every day, or like, was mean, the ups and downs? Is that. Is uh, Yeah. Yeah, okay. I did,
3: and my weight drastically dropped. And my the classmates, some of them started noticing and went to the director and told her, "Did you see? Do you see what's going on? Like she doesn't look healthy." And
2: that's when she called my mom. But yeah, pretty much a whole year I went that way. I do remember weighing
3: myself once and noticing that my weight dropped over 30 pounds and still not being like, still being like, I need to do, I need to lose more weight. But the when the director called my mom, that's when things changed. Because I became, my mom brought it up to me and that's when I got scared. Like you said before, like being exposed, like that's when things started feeling like I'm being exposed.
1: Right. That same little girl that right. didn't want to be found out exercising.
3: Yeah, in the bedroom. So
1: you were basically hiding from then until through seminary.
3: Exactly. And still years later, it still took time. There was denial followed by that for me and my parents.
1: So what happens, right? So your mom gets called. So my mom gets
3: called and my mom is so amazing. I love her so much. She was frightened because she wasn't like aware. We spoke and things sounded okay. Like I was fine. And she was, she just asked me like, how's everything going? And I'm just like, it's good. I don't know. I don't like the food here. I probably made up a lie or something. When they say in, in recovery, when you're brought to your knees, I wasn't at that point in my life. I was so excited to be in an addiction. Like I was so far lost that to be found was not something I wanted to be at.
1: It almost sounds like the stage where the drug is working. Right, exactly. It was working for me.
3: I need this is like a hug. Don't take this hug away from me. So when my mom called me, I just, I, I didn't have anything. Everything's great, mom. So then that was the end of the call. And then I just continued not eating. And nobody's, nobody like I wasn't, I was losing more weight. And then I went home for Pesach, I remember. So then my family did see me very thin and did get a little worried when they saw me. And I, I think I, I promised my family that I would eat when I get back there and put on weight. But it was a lie. And I got back and I just restricted more and lost more weight and and that was the end of the program. (laughs) Seminary program. I don't think eating disorders back then, whatever, is not that long ago, but still so much has changed the last 10 years with eating disorders and mental health in general. I think it wasn't an an, there wasn't an awareness about it. Even that word was like you're as if you're saying a curse word. So nobody really knew. Okay, she's losing weight, but I told them I'm healthy and I'm fine. But looking back now, if I was in a program right now and I noticed somebody losing tons of weight, I would be alarmed for them and I would probably do more. But I think people back then didn't know. Right. So I was able to, I was able to get away with it. But I think back to those girls that did tell
2: the the director about me and I'm like, wow, those girls are, wow, good for them, mature. And it's just a thought. Thank you. Were there any consequences
1: before like during that year? Consequences meaning, okay, I'm not eating. Did were you
3: major weak? Yes. I, like- I learned nothing because I was an empty I was a ghost. When you don't eat and nourish yourself, you can't hear people, you can't see straight, you can't function. I don't remember anything. I, I was literally, I remember sitting in class and Like an empty person. Like my mission that year was to just not eat. So it wasn't to go learn and it wasn't to make friends. It wasn't to have a good time. It was to not eat. So all, all throughout the whole day, I'm sitting in class. Oh, I didn't eat. I didn't eat. Okay, good.
1: Did you get close to anybody then?
3: Um, I came with a good friend. So I was a snob and stuck with her. So I didn't really allow myself to get close to anyone. But in general, it's hard for me to just let my guard down and become friends with the people around me.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so I I don't remember learning. I it was an empty. It was a, the year. It was nothing for me.
1: Was there any physical consequences?
3: No, I think those consequences came later when they okay. caught up with my body. Like later, after after, let's just say a couple months later, after seminary ended is when my hair started falling out. My skin got like very very bad, very bad. When I'm going to say acne, but it wasn't even acne. It was like like you looked at my skin and it was like what is going on in your body? Something is not right. Cuz they say in general your skin is a reflection of the inside of your body. Besides for genetics and everything, that was majorly just my skin and my hair and my nails all fell apart, came crashing down later.
1: you saying that was just a few months later after seminary?
3: Yeah, because right after seminary, I went to be a camp counselor in Toronto. And that's when the it went from literally not eating till that summer, overeating, major overeating. Like another... A switch flipped and it went from. I remember putting food in my mouth that summer and being like, whoa, what is this? Almost like a baby when you feed them for the first time solid food and like their faces are just like, and they want more and more, hopefully. I put like food in my mouth and I'm not saying a can of tuna, I'm saying starch, starchy food, cereal, desserts, pizza, carbohydrates, heavy, like fun foods, let's just say. And I couldn't stop.
1: Is it possible that you were looking for the same thing? You just found it in a different place?
3: Of course. You bet.
1: So, so it came with that intensity?
3: Big time. Same intensity, just just a different...
1: Going in the other opposite direction. Right. How long did that last? Was it just that summer?
3: No, that, that's, that lasted... Oh my God. Ooh. That lasted a couple of years. It would be considered binge eating disorder. Like people say emotionally eating, but this was, some people have it where it's like at the end of a long day, a hard day, they come and they, whatever, some people drink a glass of wine. Some people don't eat mindfully and they eat lots of whatever, emotionally eating. For me, it was like my whole life was a one big mess. So it was emotionally eating the whole day. Just like an alcoholic. I I would eat until I was so sick that I couldn't move
1: right basically just like you were when you were in the classroom couldn't move
3: exactly but it was very scary because the difference with when you don't eat to when you eat is that for me when i didn't eat i felt like a success when i did overeat i didn't feel like a success i felt like a failure and this is the part, this is what, what led me to my depressive states and my suicidal states and my that's what led me to my first therapist and rehab
1: Wow, okay, so can you just give me the progression again? So you went to the summer and you started eating. like how yeah. long did that last
3: i it la- It must have lasted about at least a year because I remember after that summer, I came home and I was living at home by my parents and I was still doing that binge eating, like food coma all day. Oh, oh my God, I can't. It's like, thought of it.
4: What's the, the reaction? Ugh is,
3: it's just so damaging. Like now, thank God that I, I know what healthy eating looks like. It's ugh because it's almost like putting, putting, let's say when you go to get gas in your car and you put, you fill the whole tank, the tank is on empty. And instead of putting gas, which gets your car to go, you put, you fill it up with, I don't know, mud or, soda. I don't know. Think of anything that you could put in there. It's your car's not going, right? It's ugh, because it's, it just filled a beautiful, capable vessel with things that actually just make you disgusting. Imagine eating like a whole pot of mac and cheese when you wake up in the morning. That's ugh. Like,
1: okay. No, I was wondering like what caused that reaction? Because some people, I don't know that much about dieting, but I know not dieting, the undieting like intuitive eating, like I'm sure there's always like new studies like explaining like what's a healthy way to eat. Is it up to? Oh gosh, I feel so bad for that body that had to experience the intensity that my emotions were creating through taking food and and and.
3: Yeah, actually, that's a great.
2: Like you said, that really well, and I think that's very true. Hmm. What happened after camp? Did you go to work? Did
1: you continue learning?
3: After Toronto, I went to I moved to my parents' house and I was helping them on their schluches. So that meant probably I think I was a preschool teacher in their school.
1: And you were able to do that successfully?
3: So I was about to say, so I'm back at home, damaged. Or right? feeling damaged, yeah. Feeling damaged. And just needing to maintain a certain image as a a rabbi's daughter and i love what they do i just was lost and i needed help but i didn't know what help i needed so it was hard it was almost like i was hiding i showed up every day but hurting behind a mask and a mask by that let's just say a smile and trying, being in the modest clothes that I had to wear. And that was also killing me. That was making the problem worse. I wasn't allowing myself to be found. If anything, I was covering myself up more.
1: Mm -hmm. So you're covering yourself up emotionally and now, and emotionally, physically, and now it's also spiritually. Oh yeah. I didn't ask this at all, but I'm actually curious about what was your relationship with God throughout this whole thing? Was there ever times where, like, you experienced those depressive states or, or things like that? And as God, like, where are you? Or, yeah, I wonder what, what That's that was a good like. Good
3: question. Um, as hurting as I was and lost as I was, I do remember always feeling very connected to God and specifically to the Rebbe. Something that I feel I could, like, something that stood out to me different was that I never had a, I never felt abandoned by God. I never felt that I was being punished by God. I, I don't know. I have very strong values that I didn't rebel against. I was almost just rebelling against being upset that this religion wasn't working for me. It's like, I really wanted it, but, but it's not working. So it wasn't like I was upset at God. I was just like, I want to, can you help me make it work for me? Um, And I remember throughout my journey, which consists of not keeping Shabbos, kosher, just all the things that I was raised with, I I didn't keep. And, And while not keeping it, I always remember praying to God that I love him and just help guide me and help help me be found, help me. uh, I want my parents to be proud of me. I want to make my parents proud. I want to make you proud. Help me, help me help myself to go in your ways. And now till today, years after my going to rehab for the eating disorder and then the alcohol that came into my life later, people always ask me like, how, where do you have this such great Love towards God, like how did you never hate Him? I'm just like I, I think it might be the Hasidus in my life that I was raised with, the understanding of like challenges are are here are around us to make us stronger. I looked at it as a way of almost like God noticing me. The challenges that were put in my life, I didn't see as God punishing me. I felt it more as God saying, "Breathe." I see your capabilities. I see your strength. And he's almost pushing me. When you want to train a baby to swim, you want to train a baby to walk, it hurts. It's hard for the baby. They fall and they cry. But, but you as the parent or the caretaker, it's because you're teaching them how to swim. So it's, It hurts, but it's because I'm getting you somewhere greater. So that's that was my relationship with God. It's hmm. beautiful. Thanks.
1: What led up to uh, the point of being aware that you have an issue and, and being willing to go to rehab.
3: So let's go back. I was living at home and that's when my mental health started falling, crashing. <laughs> and I remember I, I really fell to my knees and I said to my mom, I can't get out of bed. Like I couldn't get out of bed. Almost like you when you're sick. And I said, I need to see a doctor. I remember that day when I did tell her that it was followed by eating a lot, but so for so many months that it finally reached the breaking point of, I need
2: help.
1: Was that the main thing that helped you say those words, I need help? The fact that you were stuck in bed?
2: Yes, it was.
3: It was like, I wanted to be somewhere, but I couldn't get out. Yeah. So I was stuck in bed. So then I went to the doctor. And a regular pediatrician. And I remember the doctor looking at my charts and just being like, oh, you're fine. Your weight is fine. Not really seeing it as anything alarming, which is normal. Uh, a lot of doctors, they don't, they miss an opportunity to help guide like an addict to rehab, let's just say. I think at that time, that doctor missed that opportunity.
1: What was, what would he have been able to see? What did he gloss over? What detail?
3: Well, I don't know what I shared with him. So I can't say what he missed because I don't know if I shared enough.
1: Right. Okay.
3: So I am not it's not.
1: So it's nothing he could have seen on the charts.
3: I think that he was just looking at the charts and he and I but I really needed him to look at my mental health in my brain. From his perspective. My chart looked fine,
1: right? And he's a so, doctor. Yeah, like, that, that's what the doctors do. But they and look I'm, at the, chart. the reason
3: why I'm saying th- this is about the doctors because we had such an unawareness of what was going on that we even went to a doctor. If we had the awareness, we would have went straight to something much like psychiatrist, a right? Or a, or a rehab. Called a rehab. But we had such unawareness. We were in so much dark. And we, I mean, me and my mom. So that was the journey too, is going from the doctor and then just life, like still being miserable, which then led to our first therapist.
1: Right. And so once you left the doctor, it was just like, okay, everything's fine. Let me continue on with my life.
3: I think that the doctor was trying to, I remember the doctor telling me like, oh, like giving me a little bit of knowledge of what healthy eating looks like. Because I might, I think I might have shared with the doctor, like, my eating, which was all... I, I don't think I was eating... I wasn't eating anything with nu- good nutrients at that time. Just things to nourish our body. And I think the doctor was just telling me, like, okay, like, this is the serving size for, like, proteins and me, giving me basic
2: nutritious education.
4: hmm
1: And how long did it last? Meaning how... How long did it take until you were the therapist?
3: So, yeah, so it didn't last very long. I remember being still not okay. And I think, I don't...
2: I must say, my mother is very strong and must have been very...
3: Yeah, she's a good mom. She must have reached out to somebody or something to get me to my first therapist. I don't know how she had that... Awareness or knowledge, but I I don't know exactly how I got to my first therapist. Okay. It's a good question for me to explore. I don't know.
1: What was it like the first day, the first time going to your therapist?
3: It was really... Scary? It was really scary. Therapy was not the in thing. It was like, you're really messed up if you're seeing a therapist.
1: How was it walking into the office? And speaking your first words. And
3: okay, so I, how long did, did
1: it take for you to be honest?
3: I don't remember all the details because I've been through so many therapists, and this is, I just, I don't have so much clear memory of it. But I did say it was scary, but I also want to say that it was also very safe. I felt very like for the first time, I felt that I was giving myself an opportunity to look inside of me and try to find that emptiness and understand it. Mm. Because we said from when I was nine years old, feeling that emptiness till I'm now at least around 20, 21 years old, I never gave myself a minute to understand or look or instead I was just filling the emptiness with negative things.
1: Right. Right. I'm imagining like a certain feeling like of emptiness and then a complete intolerance of it. Yeah. So let's shut it up as quickly as possible. Not giving myself a chance to sit down and think to myself, what is this emptiness and what does it need? And that you feel like you were able to do with the therapist.
3: I I didn't know, not from the start, because it takes time to find the right therapist and build a relationship with. But what I'm saying is when I was, regardless of who the therapist was, Being at an appointment that was for me Mm. felt very freeing because Mm. it was like, almost imagine you're the busiest businessman and you never have time for yourself. And then you're like, you know what? I'm dedicating a week on vacation. You never give yourself time, but then finally give yourself your free time. You feel like you're loving yourself
1: for a Mm. minute. What was the process between that first therapist until you actually got to rehab? Did somebody tell you, hey... You have something called an eating disorder. Yeah. What? Was this it the therapist th- that the we're the talking therapist.
3: about, she was an eating disorder specialist. Yeah, that's the first person I went to. How did I know about eating disorders? I think that's the credit goes to my mom. I think she, because she found that therapist who was specializes in eating disorders. I wonder how my mom got directed towards her and just in general eating disorders.
1: Okay. And, and when did you know you needed rehab and how were you willing to go?
3: I knew I needed rehab after seeing this therapist. And by the way, I was living at home and it got so bad, even while seeing this therapist we're talking about with my eating disorder and just my life in general, religion and everything we were talking about that I moved to New York. And thought that if I move to New York, things will get better. But little did I know my issues were running with me and things got worse. And in between that time, I was also doing the shidduch system, the dating. And I was set up with a guy and while dating him and really things were great, apparently. I think I I mentioned therapy in in one of my conversations on this date and that scared the uh, the dating process and shut it down because I mentioned therapy. And that's what, what spiraled me worse was I think that I really liked this person that I was dating. And then I mentioned a very sensitive part of my life to this person and they turned me down because of that. So it opened up a whole new can of worms.
1: If this is how, yeah. Oh my gosh. If this is what I'm going to get, rejection in this system, I don't want to wonder what conclusion. I'm saying that, but I'm wondering what conclusion you came to Um, as a result of that learning. Oh,
3: I felt really, really, really sad and hurt. I felt that the one thing in my life that I finally felt that I was doing right was actually wrong, like getting help.
1: Right. Wrong meaning it's going to take away from what you actually want. The right thing is costing you. I'm doing the right thing. I'm, I'm, I'm taking care of myself. I'm doing therapy. And here is somebody that I want to continue dating. And it's being taken away from me because I'm doing the right thing, which is going right. to therapy.
3: And the part that really bothers me most is that it's like they say, keep everything under the rug, right?
1: I right? They used to say They used to say it. Mean, to some say, <laughs> some right? people say it now, but, but it's not.
3: that's the part that bothered me is that back then when I knew that what I was doing was right and real and true, and we all have what I had. We all have our things, our skeletons. And back then, if you dare showed yours. You're a bad person when in reality, you're a good person.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You're a strong person. And that bothered me a lot because it was like, I was looked at as a bad person and the dating had to be canceled and called off. When in reality, I was like, you're the one that's ignoring it. I'm the one that's exposing it.
1: All right. Whatever. So, it's not. So what'd you do with that?
3: What did I do with it? I got into a deeper depression. And I went worse into my eating disorder. And I went back to the restrictive eating. After the whole two years, let's just say, of the overeating, that, let's just say, it didn't because it just turned into restrictive eating. And then I was back to the restrictive eating, losing weight, but then still binging at night. Mm. So I was not eating during the day, starving myself, but binging at night. What I did in seminary of not eating at all, I wasn't able to do anymore. My body was catching up and saying, you're hungry. But I didn't know how to eat, so instead I binged. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I binged on, on, I don't know, it didn't have to be something so crazy like mac and cheese. I was constantly starving. My body was not nourished. So my eating was just out of whack. I didn't know what it meant to eat proper meals and snacks. The depression was getting worse. The food was consuming all of my mind. And my life revolved around eating or not eating. And I couldn't properly be at work. I couldn't properly sleep. I remember that's when I was living in New York. I fell to my knees again and said, I really need help, mom. And I remember my mom said, my mother found me a number. I don't know how or where or what, but it, I'm pretty sure it was the Safe Foundation hotline.
2: Oh, cool. I think.
3: And I called this number and they asked me, they, I remember they told me it's confidential. I didn't even think I had to share my name. They just asked me my age and they said, based off of what, you're, what you need help with, we're going to give you two contacts of two therapists and you could call them both and see who you connect with. And they'll set you up with an appointment. And the first number I called was a wonderful lady who is my therapist till today. She's so unbelievable Jewish. I started seeing her. She's in Flatbush. And we were having our sessions once a week. And with time, she said, you need help. You need more help. I'm not enough. And she's an eating disorder specialist. And she said, you need to go to rehab. And I know of a rehab where I send a lot of my clients to and it's called the Renfrew Center. And the reason I think she suggested that rehab was because it's, they're familiar with Jewish patients and they have some kosher meal options. So I said, okay, great. Rehab sounds great, but you need to be telling this to my mom, not me. I'm like, I I don't have any money. So I remember my mom flew in from Florida and we had a session together and she broke it to my mom. And I remember me and my mom looking at each other crying because like, it was almost like leading up to that. Like we knew it was coming. Uh, We just heard it. And I went to Renfrew. I went to, I started an outpatient program. I don't know if it's still around, but it was in Manhattan. It was three days a week. And I did that program for about a month until I realized it's not enough.
1: How how long were you at Renfrew?
3: Um, a month.
1: A month. And what do you feel like you gained there?
3: I gained another step in the right direction. I didn't come out cured or necessarily better, but I did come out knowing that more of an awareness of what's going on inside of me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I didn't gain anything but I know that it was the right step in the right direction. Okay. I was modeled what it looked like to eat proper meals, but I was still fighting the system at that time. I was still fighting the eating disorder. I still wanted it. I wanted to be its friend and keep acting out in bad behaviors. But the reason why I, I left Renfrew after a month is because my insurance was up 30 days. And after the program ended, I moved back home to Florida to my parents, and things
2: got worse. Nothing got better. Well, that's not nice to say. Things, part of the journey. I mean,
3: you know,
1: but... So it started getting better, but it fell back.
3: I think the part that started getting better was just the awareness and being less in denial. Mm -hmm. And the more acceptance around mental health and disorders.
4: Mm Mm-hmm.
3: So then after I'm I'm fast forwarding a lot, but after living back at home, I, I fell again. I, I, it became, I became rock bottom again. And I said, I need to go back to rehab. This time I told mom and dad, I need to be in the rehab. I need to sleep there. I can't come out. The one in Manhattan was only outpatient program.
1: You can't sleep there. Okay. Okay.
3: They don't offer that in New York. It was the only option. And at that point, I didn't want to go into, I didn't want to go into an inpatient. So it worked for me. I was happy to come home and restrict again. I didn't, I didn't want to follow the program. Mm -hmm. So then, yeah. So after I, I moved back home and then suicidal thoughts were coming in, I didn't want to be around. I didn't want to be around, but I did because I also knew that I also had a good understanding of. God and I really love Hashem and I love the Rebbe and I love, I think life is beautiful. I just needed help navigating. So I had suicidal thoughts, but I never would ever want to, I would never want to do it. So I fought really hard to want to live. So I said to my mom, I need to go to rehab. I need to be, I need to stay there because I can't come home. Life is too hard. Mm-hmm. So that's when that process started, when she called and she tried to see what she could do, considering that it's a lot of money and money wasn't falling off of trees at that time in my parents' yard. So we got approved for the insurance and I went. There was a center in South Florida, a few hours away. So I went in for about a month and a half and I remember while being in there, Feeling really safe, but also really, really um, lost. I don't know. I remember carrying around my book, Towards a Meaningful Life. That was like my my Bible. But yeah, after I was in there, I fought the program again and I left. And I went back
2: home.
1: When did alcohol begin? Like we're just getting started.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I know. Fast forward, really fast forward. I went back to rehab again. And then left again, went back for a month. And then after, and then I moved back home. And then after living at home, I moved back to New York and started a flower school program in Manhattan and loved it, took the course and decided I'm going to stay in New York and pursue flowers because it was just the first thing in like my whole life that I actually felt like. Excited about something. Mm -hmm. And that's when alcohol came into my life, where I was finally felt happy about something and good at something, but still a large part of me was empty and I was filling it with alcohol. And then,
1: what do you think helped you if there was like one, two, or three things that you feel like helped you the most in the process of getting a eating disorder recovery? What's something that actually allowed you to have sustained recovery for at least an extended period of time?
3: So when I was going through that process of recovery from the eating disorder and the rehabs, one thing that that really helped was following a a meal plan Mm -hmm. um, from the specialists, from the doctors, because my understanding of meal plans was very misconstrued, didn't make any sense, and it wasn't Mm -hmm. right. But another thing that I was very aware of is that the eating disorder doesn't just leave you it's more that you're not acting out in bad behaviors, but the it, the eating disorder is where it's 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 behaviors and then there's the thoughts It's two parts
1: and so, if I could work with the thoughts, then it won't come into my behavior saying
3: okay? no well that was- true, that is true, but what I'm saying is you could have eating disorder thoughts that I still struggle with till today, so even if Right now, thank God I'm healthy and I'm eating properly and I'm nourishing myself and I'm taking care of myself. I still have body shaming thoughts, Mm -hmm. bad body image issues.
1: So can you just share briefly, like,
2: how did you get into recovery? And how did you know
1: you had a problem with alcohol? Yeah. How did you know alcohol was a problem?
3: I knew alcohol was a problem because I, this therapist that I told you about, I met right for the eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I was seeing her and I moved back to New York and Florida a few times in between this whole story. And throughout all those years, I still held on to my therapist if it was on the phone or on Skype. And so she, we really had a good connection, a relationship, and she really knows me. And when I moved back to New York, right, to attend the flower school, I went straight back to my therapist, like, finally in person, I could see you. And we were working together. And she said, Look, she's good at what she does. She said, If you don't go to a. Me- she basically said, You have. She kept guiding me in the direction of go to AA, TLR. And I always resisted it. And until. I realized, wait, maybe I should take her advice. So she pointed it out. She guided me in that direction, the same way she guided me to rehab.
1: What are a few things that contribute to your recovery today?
3: I have a lot of things I could tell you, but one thing that really is big in my life is what I said when I was earlier. My understanding of challenges is these challenges to be a better person, and to be closer to God. So at this point in my life, right now, I do things because this is what's needed of me.
1: Do you have daily practices or anything that you do that helps you with your recovery today? Whether yes. it's something you do daily or something weekly? Yes.
3: Yeah, so what helps me is staying connected to people in recovery and being of service. I constantly have to make sure I'm connected to people because it helps me remember that I have, I'm an addict and it reminds me that's okay. It's okay to be an addict and it's a great thing. But another thing that I do is journaling is really big for me and specifically gratitude journal. It keeps me in check and, and eating my meals is really big for me. Whether I'm in the mood of it or not, I know that I, my body needs it to keep going and do what I have to do.
1: What do you see are the direct gifts as a result of you working on yourself and being willing to have that support? Being willing to stay sober, being willing to be connected to your community, being willing to have your set meals.
3: I have a beautiful husband and baby. That's a huge gift. I have a lot of blessings in my life. I I believe that taking the challenges God gave me and being okay with them, meaning overcoming them constantly, is what's driving my life in a positive direction. What recovery gave me, which I'm super grateful for, is it gave me the opportunity to reconnect with the spiritual part of my life and the religious part of my life that I was losing, and I could have easily been... In my life, married to a non Jew with not Jewish kids and thinking that I'm happy, but not living a life that is aligned with my values. I think recovery gave me the ability to live a healthy life that's aligned with my values.
1: I have, I have one last question for you, okay? Yeah. What do you wish you heard when you were looking yourself in the mirror when you were nine years old?
2: Probably you are so loved. For being exactly who you are, the way you are?
1: What do you think would have convinced you to be honest and not fight the programs when you were in rehab?
2: That same
3: thing. You are loved exactly the way you are, exactly the way Hashem made you, God made you from the day you were born. Exactly the way you are. And want to be is exactly what we love. That's beautiful. And I think that the reason why I love that is because now that I'm a mom and a parent, thank God, when I look at my baby, there's so many, there's so many things that I put on her already, labels. And I have to constantly remind myself that yes, she's my baby, but this is Hashem's baby. This is God's child and her journey. Is not my journey. So, what I wanted to hear when I was nine is your love, just the way you are. Is the message is that as a parent, sometimes a parent wants a child to be a certain way when it's not the 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 parents. It's not for them. It's for Hashem. It's for God. It's it's Hashem's child. Hashem is guiding that person on their journey, not the parent's journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, as parents, we want our children to go a certain way, but It's not the parent's journey, it's the child's journey to figure that out. And along the way, I think the child should still know that they're loved exactly the way they are because they are exactly what Hashem created, not what the mom created or the dad created.
1: Mm -hmm. Is there any, like, last message that you would love for people to know? What would it be?
2: Yeah, my message would be to keep fighting literally
3: keep fighting no matter how hard it gets because my blessings in my life came after so much hurt and so much fight. And it was literally just around the corner. The blessings were waiting right there. And I know so many times if I gave up, I wouldn't have ever found so much beauty. It's like the answers are right before you want to give up. So I I, I like to tell a lot of a lot of people to keep fighting even if it's hard and i know that sounds not fair but good stuff comes when you don't give up
1: i feel like there's i'm just getting a feeling that there's this one more message if i'm somebody that's ashamed of something i'm ashamed of sharing something i'm suffering what would you tell me
4: i
3: know it's scary and you're ashamed of it but i think that if you want to live a better life and find freedom in yourself and in the world around you sharing it will help remove the shame that comes with it. And it'll also by sharing it, I mean with the world, with with a close friend, with a therapist, with a parent, you will feel liberated from it once you just share it because you'll feel a little less lonely. And also I understand it's scary because once you share something that's kept inside of you and now that the secret's out, You have to work on it. It's real. And now you you might have to fix it. And that takes work. But I'm telling you, it's worth it because it gets better. Yes, it's hard to do the work, but you'll have a better life
1: after it. That's a beautiful message. Thank you very much. On behalf of all of us listening, anybody who's listening, all of us in the community, and on behalf of the Shabbos, we thank you so much coming here today and sharing your story your experience strength and hope
3: thank you
0: thank you for listening please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at we hope you'll be back for the next episode of the nashamas podcast this is Moshe Khanan, wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day